Trigger warning, this episode contains topics that may not be appropriate for all listeners. So here we are. It's a strange place for both of us. Um, Pumpkin spice and nothing nice. Because Rob is all things pumpkin spice and I am nothing nice. Um, (laughs) We're going to um, have a little introduction as our first episode. Um, I love pretty much all things true crime. Um, my favorite though is cold cases and unidentified, unknown. I think that it is a, tra- a tragedy period, but that someone should be without their name affects me deeply. It is it is something that I just I I don't I don't think should be for anybody. If if you have lived, then you have a life and you should have a name. So um, to back up a little bit, my my passion cases were Brandon Lawson, and he was missing from Texas. Uh, There's a missing woman, Tracy Pittman Kegley, who is from Wetumpka, Alabama. And then there was a Bibb County John Doe and a um, Opelika Baby Jane Doe. And those were my four most intense interests. I am um, familiar with one of Tracy's relatives, and I might do an episode on her with permission. But I can happily say right now that of those four cases, three have either been solved or they have had developments that are leading to a closure in the last couple of years. So, you know, the Rona sucks, but there have been some massive, major, amazing things that have happened in that year. So as my introductory story, I'm going to tell you about Paul Daniel Armentrout. On March 27, 1961, a young man was hitchhiking. Um, He had picked up other rides before that and very little communication between him and the drivers. But this one particular ride that he took would be the fatal one that would end his life. Over the Cahaba River in Bibb County, Alabama, there was a bridge that was scary and terrifying and wooden and it needed to be replaced. It was responsible for at least five deaths already. Um, The newspapers get a little murky with their details because, you know, it was Alabama in the 60s. So they didn't report every life as a life that mattered. Um, But this is in particular about this young man. So he would be picked up by the driver of the vehicle named James White. And he sat in the back seat. They had a very short conversation. And before long, they would be driving over the guardrail into the water below. Uh, James White was able to actually escape the vehicle and swim out through a window while the passenger in the back could not. Um, He did, the driver did inform people that there was someone in the back of the car and divers from Montgomery were called up. Uh, Lloyd Harris, Bill War, and Joe Hunter were the ones to find him in the back seat. Um, when they were able to actually have him looked at by the coroner, do an autopsy and all that, uh, they found that his neck was broken and he had broken two places in his left hand. So even if he had, you know, been able to escape the car, he he couldn't. He died pretty much on impact. Um, the problem was, is that there was not really anything identifying on him when they looked. Um, he had a limp from a childhood, uh, childhood polio um diagnosis that he was able to survive that, but he was left with a limp. And then on his arm, and we'll include pictures of this, but on his arm was 
what is either a tattoo or a carved scarring of our wife. Yes, a scarring. Like he took, there was some kind of a bladed instrument that he used or someone used and cut into his skin in a large, large portion. And it read RY plus love, plus love. Um, His possessions that he did have though, included his clothing. Um, There was a pack of cigarettes and matches, a cigarette uh, text stamp from South Carolina. And there was a billfold containing a blurry photo of the young man with a young woman. And written on the back of the photo was, think of me always and remember how we used to go places together. And that is just, there is something about that statement that is so beautiful. And it's almost as bittersweet as, you know, his death as, as a teenager, you know, somebody cared for him. Um, he had, like I said before, he had taken rides with other people, but the conversations were never really heavy. They didn't really ever, you know, reveal any details about it. He had stated to people that his parents were separating and that as a result, he was told, you can't live here anymore, find somewhere else. And so he was either going to San Diego to join the Marines or maybe the Navy or the Army. It, it's really, it, I think it went from person to person, what he would say. Um, but regardless of what he was leaving behind or what plans he had hoped for his future, the truth seemingly followed him to the grave. His body was prepared for viewing and he remained in a funeral home called Jackley's Funeral Home. Jackley was the coroner and he was there for an extended amount of time in the hopes that somebody would come by and claim him. Somebody would say, hey, that's my kid, or I know that kid, or he said his name, or something. But unfortunately, nothing ever came about. Many despaired mothers and fathers would come in and examine him, and they would all leave with a glimmer of hope that who their lost loved one, their lost son was still alive somewhere out there. And the tragedy in that is that there were people that were missing someone, but he wasn't it. More than 300 viewings, phone calls, letters, and telegrams in a nationwide attempt would bring nothing as well. So with the soft hue of sunshine upon them, the Bibb County community that never knew this young man in life buried him in the Centerville Memorial Cemetery on April 6th. There were numerous floral wreaths and sprays that were donated from citizens spanning from Bibb County to Birmingham to Montevallo, Calera, and Tuscaloosa. He was interred in the front of the cemetery so that his family could easily relocate him when they came forward to collect him. Um, one thing that was very big was that they they did make an effort to get this kid out. Like he was in other newspapers all across the nation picked up on him and still nobody could identify him. Uh, his funeral was officiated by Baptist and Methodist pastors. Uh, Reverend Marcus Smith cast blame of the tragedy upon the young man's parents, stating, not caring for a son, the boy had not been taught by his parents who he was, a child of God. His grave was then marked with a marble headstone inscribed unknown and the date of the accident. Um, this is from the Centerville Press newspaper. Um, there was an article that documented his funeral. Somewhere a child, this child, is missing. Maybe someone cares, maybe not. Bibb County found him. Bibb County didn't know him, but Bibb County cared. And then a poem also sent in uh, from an anonymous person in Stockton, California, titled Unknown, Unclaimed, Red, Hair of Brown, Eyes of Blue, No One to Shed a Tear or Two. It really doesn't seem quite fair to have no one but God to care. God, we know, has called him home. No more a need to ever roam. 
RY plus love, it seems to me what's hidden here should never be. RY plus love, God loves him well. If no one knows, no one can tell. In an unnamed grave he is today, but it doesn't seem quite fair this way to a grave unnamed and a girl. Uh, there was another poem written by Haida Teague of Anniston, Alabama, to the same newspaper, in part that read, but all his hurts and heartaches now have slipped into the past, for the lad nobody wanted here has found a home at last. His headstone was actually replaced with the help of a monument fund uh, and nationwide donations in June of 1961. Uh, when it was replaced, they had included a picture of him, the um, composite sketch. It wasn't his actual photo, but it was a composite sketch. And it was just a little bit more sentimental than, than what had been there. Um, about seven months after the young man's death, on Friday, October 13th, tragedy would hit the county again when the surviving driver, James White, died in a fatal wreck only 10 miles from the original accident scene on the bridge. I think it was about an hour difference in time, too. He had been driving alone on his way home to Cottondale, Alabama, from work. Um, his vehicle left the roadway, he hit a ditch, and the vehicle overturned several times. He had been flung from the vehicle and crushed as the vehicle overturned. The article informing of his death included references to the March accident and the young man that perished. Uh, James White was buried in Tuscaloosa. 55 years later, on June 9th, 2016, with the funding of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and the hard work of the crews from the Bibb County Sheriff's Department, the hitchhiker was exhumed for DNA testing. Uh, that made big news that they were they were going to try to pull DNA in and see what they could find with it. And the best results came out. And finally, in late November 2021, the world learned of the unboy's name, Daniel Paul Armantrout, or Danny, to those that knew him. He had been given back his identity through advanced DNA testing. Um, a brother was actually found also. Danny's brother, Don Hamilton, confirmed the name researchers so long to hear. Mr. Hamilton was then able to fill in the backstory of the team that had perished more than 60 years before. But with the details now able to close this mystery of the John Doe hitchhiker, a new mystery opens. Danny wasn't Don's only brother. Uh, the children grew up in what Don recalls an abusive home where belt beatings and starvation were frequent punishments by their mother and stepfather. There were three brothers, David Armantrout, the eldest, Donald, then Danny, and all desperately wanted to escape their volatile home in Paris, Tennessee. David left first in 1960 at the age of 19. Donald followed later that same year at 17, and then Danny left when he was 15 in January 1961. Donald went on to um, become a Army Sergeant Major and retired as such and is residing in Seminole, Florida. He recalls seeing his brother David briefly in 1962, but since then has had no communication with either of them despite his efforts to find them. Uh, while Donald now has answers to one of the questions, he is still looking for the other brother. Um, Donald had relayed information indicating that David would choose living on the streets as opposed to ever returning home. So it almost like at the time that he saw him, David might have been homeless. Um, he would be 82 this November and Donald expressed lovingly, if he's alive, he has a place in my house to stay. So that is my story on Danny, the sweet boy oh. that had no home until he had a home. That is sad, but I'm glad that the ending, you know, um, ended. I mean, I'm glad it was an ending. I'm glad they identified him and that he right. got to finally rest in peace in dignity. It was, it. you get with cold cases that are 
older than a certain time, it's almost like they will just always be unknown. And that is so tragic. And so, you know, not assuming that all people are bad or what have you, but like that, these people that go unidentified, they've hugged someone, they've loved someone, they've spoken to someone, they've had plans for the next day at some point. And just to have all of that gone, it's it's just a shame. But luckily, and with a lot of major help, he has a name and his headstone has now been replaced to include his name. Uh, December 28th was his birthday and his brother came down to Centerville and was there for them to change the, the headstone. That's awesome. Yeah. That's, that's really cool. Like, move on to you. Yes. And it's really cool, you know, how we can think about, you know, people living and we can have this expanded view on he was a human being who lived, who lived. Yeah. And he has a story. He has history. He had a future. And he was trying to escape a, a toxic environment. And unfortunately, you know, it ended sadly, but now we know who he is. And that's the important part. Um, So about me and why I'm on the podcast is I'm really passionate about cold cases and true crime, but I'm also really passionate about the mental health aspect of people and, you know, being a man and dealing with mental health issues, speaking about mental health from a man's perspective is super important to me. I'm also a chef and I'm passionate about food. But I'm a geek. I don't just like to cook. I don't like putting flavors together. That's not the only reason why I cook. I like to figure out why people eat what we eat and where the history of the food we eat comes from. Because there's a reason why certain people eat tomatoes and not in other and not other people. There's a certain reason why we eat lobster, and our ancestors would have considered that cruel and unusual punishment. But today. Lobster is the food of luxury, where before it was prisoner food and they were eating bugs and it was disgusting. And I, I like the history of food. And, you know, for a long time, people thought tomatoes were poisonous. Like, it's <laughs> we eat tomatoes now, but 200 years ago, negative. They were poisonous. And I, I like had no idea food. about that. Oh, yeah. Well, it's because back, you know, especially in the medieval era, food utensils and plates were made out of iron and pewter. And they're super reactive. And tomatoes are very acidic. So people were dying Mm -hmm. of of lead poisoning. And they were attributing it not to what they were eating with, but what they were eating. eating. (laughs) And so tomatoes were poisonous because people were dying. Um, But I kind of wanted to take our two passions and kind of blend them together today. So I want to talk about death row inmates because I really, I don't know what it is about me and wanting to know about people on death row because like, I don't know, I guess the whole idea of knowing when you're going to die is both terrifying and somewhat comforting at the same time. So I'm kind of just like, I just want to know death row inmate stuff, what goes through their brain and what do they request as their last meal? And furthermore, I really want to talk about why the last meal is even a thing. People are fascinating. <laughs> what they do is fascinating. It's just, we are, we are such an interesting 
free floating being. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. It's just do you know why? Do you know the story or well, we I can't say with 100% certainty the story, but some of the ideas surrounding the last meal and like why we have it. I know nothing about last meals other than it's the last meal. Oh, okay. So there are a couple of arguments. The biggest argument is that it started with Jesus at the Last Supper, right? And that kind of started this idea for having one last meal before you uh, meet the end. But mm -hmm. there are some scholars that argue that it's older than Jesus. And it goes back to ancient Greece and this idea that a person who died that wasn't fed would be unable to cross the river of sticks into the afterlife. So those people that oh. they had, those people that they had um, condemned to death would be giving a last would be given a last meal so that they could cross over into the afterlife into Hades wow. to deal with their afterlife as they intended to. And that kind of moved over and migrated, you know, and um, there are some arguments that in Massachusetts during like the witch trials and such specifically, they would use the last meal given to a, con a convict as a means for communal atonement for their crime, the coming together and, you know, forgiving this person of their transgressions as Jesus had forgiven us during the Last Supper. So did they eat so, with them? Some, some, in some cultures, the last meal was, was a communal thing and some, no, it was in solitary. You were by yourself and had your last meal. That kind of changes depending on who's making the arguments and who's supporting it with facts. There isn't really concrete evidence on the exact beginning of the last supper or, or the, you know, whatever beyond the, the religious ideology of the Christians and then some ancient Greek scholars that have some evidence to believe that it was a, a means to allow the person to cross on. Um, but it is still a thing we do in the United States modern day. Well, some states don't. And I am going to talk about the last meal that caused Texas to no longer offer last meals. But let's talk about your last meal. Okay. So I chose to do John Wayne Gacy, um, the pillar of his community. He was active <laughs> in local politics. He had been a great neighbor. And he was even a beloved clown for children's birthday parties. He was twice divorced and owned his own construction company. And he lived in a modest suburban home. But with all pillars of community, there's dark. In 1968, he had been convicted of sodomy in Iowa and sentenced to 10 years. He went on parole in June 1970. Um, he was arrested again in February 1971, but the charges were dropped because the complainant did not come to court. Um, he was questioned in August 1975 and again in uh, December 1976 about things. He was lastly arrested on December 22nd, 1978 in connection with the missing 15-year-old Robert I think his name is Peist. Um, he had been, his charges were that he uh, was charged with murder, murder during the commission of a felony, aggravated kidnapping, deviant sexual assault, indecent liberties with a minor. His trial ran from February 6th to March 12th, 1980, and it resulted in a guilty verdict, and he was sentenced to death for his crimes. 
Um, he pretty much was charged with bra uh, brutally raping, torturing, and murdering at least 33 boys and men in Norwood Park Township, Illinois. Um, just a quick moment. These are his victims that have been identified. Timothy Jack McCoy, John Butkovich, Daryl Julius Sampson, Randall Wayne Reffitt, Samuel, Samuel G. Dodd Stapleton, Michael Lawrence Bonin, William Huey Carroll Jr., James Byron Hackinson, Rick Lewis Johnston, Kenneth Ray Parker, Michael M. Marino, William George Bundy, Francis Wayne Alexander, Gregory John Godzik, John Allen Sizik, John Stephen Prestige, Matthew Walter Bowman, Robert Edward Gilroy Jr., John Anthony Mowry, Russell Lloyd Nelson, Robert David Winch, Tommy Joe Bowling, David Paul Talsma, William Wayne Kindred, Timothy David O'Rourke, Frank William Landigan, James Mazera, Robert Jerome Peist. And there are still five that are unnamed, unidentified, um, but hopefully with advancements in DNA. Yeah. Uh, like with my case, hopefully they will be named soon and their families can get closure and know the stories. Um, his final meal was on May 9th, 1984. It was a bucket of KFC original recipe fried chicken. He had French fries, 12 deep fried shrimp, and a pound of strawberries and a Diet Coke. A Diet Coke, just for good measure. Diet Coke, just just to knock off some, some numbers. <laughs> oh, he was a horrible, horrible monster. Oh, I don't even think the word monster like adequately describes that. Off. Because, like, not only did he... You're right. You know, tr trigger warning, trigger warning. Not only did he rape these men that he abducted and these boys that he abducted, many times he would force the person that's currently being traumatized to bury the prior people in the crawl space and under the floor of his house. Excuse me? Like, that... <laughs> was crazy what to me. what and boggles me right is that you you have a history there's a history with police there's a history of crime and yet it took he, upwards of 35 to 40 murders for them to figure out this motherfucker is crazy you know i like, think maybe we know the answer to what's happening but mm, i don't know like, let's give him the benefit of the doubt he's, he's, he's a, a pillar, pillar of the, of the community. community right right not that you know pillars of the community of today aren't doing heinous things to children um but be that as it may that is a conversation for another day so i have a uh, two upstanding gentlemen that i would like to talk about briefly briefly talk about the first one i want to talk about is peter j Minial. i think i'm saying that man's name correct um, he was convicted and put to death in Texas, okay? He um, was with his friend, James Russell, James Russell, excuse me. And they went to this gentleman's name by the name of Paul Manier. I'm not sure if the gentleman had French descent, if it's not Manier, I don't know. It's spelled Manier, okay? To a party, right, where Peter the person we were speaking about, convinced his friend that they needed to rob Mr. Manier, right? 
So Russell went out to the car as a distraction to get cocaine because that was a thing. Well, Peter J. Miniel decided that robbing wasn't sufficient. So they bludgeoned this man to death and then tried once they realized that he wasn't dying. They said, well, we need a stabbing. So Russell pulled out a knife and wasn't willing to follow through with said action. So Peter J. Miniel used this knife and stabbed the man 39 times. Oh, my attempted gosh. To, attempted to slit the man's throat, but the knife was too dull. So they ended up shoving um, things in the man's mouth and down his throat. And he ended up dying because of blunt force trauma, 39 stab wounds, and lacerations. Um, Peter, horrible. Yes, Mr. Russell got life in prison and Peter J. Miniel was convicted and put to death on October 6, 2004. The crime took effect, well, the crime happened um, in, um, on March, I'm sorry, May 9th, 1986 uh, was when um, Peter murdered Paul Manier many in 1986 and he was put to death in 2004 now the really ironic thing about peter j Miniel is not only was he the person that caused texas to no longer offer the last meal but take a guess at some of the things that this man wanted to eat for his last meal a steak no this man ordered 20 beef tacos and beef enchiladas a jalapeno pizza, and fried chicken. Oh, wait, I'm not done yet. He also ordered spaghetti, fruit cake, half a chocolate cake, half a vanilla cake, cookies and cream, and caramel pecan fudge ice cream, two Cokes, two Pepsis, two root beers, and two glasses of orange juice as his last meal. And here is the funniest part. He touched none of it. He ate absolutely none of it. I have a question. Does a chef make this or do they go and buy it from somewhere? It depends on, it depends. Some states um, will allow you to order specific things from specific restaurants, right? Like in Florida, for example, their law on the last meal is it has to cost less than $40 and it has to come from something somewhere local. So you can order like KFC or Papa John's or whatever, mm -hmm. but it has to be local. Some states, the chef, will cook the, the 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 request and so they'll have the disclaimer we will try our best to honor every request or whatever but it that just depends on the state um you know that offers last meal um as a thing but not texas any um <laughs> and there'll be pictures of him too um the other person i wanted to talk about as far as the craziest last meal was Mr. Lawrence Russell Brewer. Just, just to give you a little bit of a history on Mr. Brewer real quick, he was a member of the KKK. Oh, delightful. Um, yeah, he was, he was one of those. He was um, from Texas as well. He, was, he and another person were both convicted of murdering a gentleman by the name of James Bird Jr., um, James Byrd Jr. was killed on June 7th, 1998 by Lawrence Brewer and his co-defendant, 
was John King. Okay. Now, um, they decided to lynch Mr. Bird Jr. and drag him um, by the back of their truck for almost three miles. And um, then they went to a barbecue after. Mm -hmm. um, it was one of the, it was a very large crime um, that took place in the 90s in which hate crimes became punishable as, you know, uh, enhanced penalties, right? right? Um, because it was made clear that this was a hate crime because both of these gentlemen were in very, were prominent members of very prominent white supremacist groups and they targeted this man because he was a black man. Not only was this right. man black, but he was also disabled. And um, the lynching happened after they brutally beat the man and then they decided to drag him by their truck. And the um, the great the grievousness of this crime can be traced back to they can prove that the man survived in about fifty percent of the actual lynching because they, they he didn't have any significant injuries to his head, which would allude to him trying to hold his head up while he was being dragged. And they hit a divot in the road, which caused a detachment of his head and one of his arms. And that's what actually killed Mr. Burr Jr. And they decided, the two, um, the, the two murderers decided to place this man's remains um, in front of an African-American cemetery. Just kind of laid his body there. Um, kind of like a last ditch. Hoorah, right? And the scariest part of this crime is Remains of Mr. Bird Jr. were found in 89 places around the 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 three mile travel that his his body took. Oh my gosh! And um, awful. Just I can't even express to you the sickness. I I heard about this crime um, probably in the early 2000s. I think they did like an HBO expose. On, on white supremacist groups because I'm from Kentucky yeah. so white supremacy is still pretty big in certain parts of Kentucky right um, and they did an entire expose on this crime in particular and talking to you know hearing interviews from Mr. Bird's family seeing the court you know what you're allowed to see in the courtroom it was all just really bone chilling and sickening these men had no remorse they didn't give a single fuck that they just did this inhumane thing to another human being. It was unreal. His it just kind of tells you the character of people and why they like this man had two fried chicken steaks with gravy drenched onions, a bacon cheeseburger, by the way, triple meat with all the fixings on the side, one omelet with ground beef, tomatoes, onions, bell peppers, and jalapenos. And we're not done. He wanted a massive bowl of ketchup smothered fried okra, barbecue meat by the pound with a half a load of white bread to sop it up and three fully decked out fajitas. We're still not done. He then asked for a Pizza Hut meal, a Pizza Hut meat lover's pizza, a pint of blue bell vanilla ice cream, a piece of peanut butter fudge with crushed peanuts and three root beers. Part. It was those two meals combined because of how exorbitant they were and neither one of them ate the food. They just ordered it you stick it to the man one last time that Texas now no longer allows you to have a last meal request. I think everyone in Texas that's on death row gets like the meatloaf, mashed potatoes, and peas before they die. 
Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. People are amazing. That is so that that tragic. Tragic doesn't even cover it. I don't, I don't, I don't know the word. There's, uh, there's not a word that I know of in my vocabulary that describes how detached someone has to be to humanity. That, That, that part, like I can't fathom like I can justify self-defense, right? Somebody mm-hmm. getting killed because you're defending yourself. I can justify that. Oh, I can justify I can justify anger. Absolutely. My, my, I can justify someone attacking someone that I love and then, you know, me reacting violently because of that. I can I can understand that thought process. I can understand um you know, those types of ideas. But just to grab another person yeah for no other reason than they were just living i don't understand the type of animal that it takes to do that and then the people that you know like john wayne gacy he just he just was an animal like i don't see how another human being could do what he did and live with themselves like that has to take a level of detachment like you said they're they they can't cognitively recognize that this behavior is okay. And people like Dahmer, how does a person exist in society and not show signs that he's eating people and keeping their body parts in the freezer? With Dahmer, like, I don't the I I don't know I don't know the name of the person that was with him, but he had a victim escape. Yeah. Came. Mm-hmm. And because he said it was a it was a relationship issue or something like that, the, the cops were like, oh, okay, we'll figure it out. Yeah. Because because in that time frame, being gay, ooh, don't want to touch that. Y'all, y'all figure that out. Oh, oh. Mike, are you kidding? These are people. It doesn't matter. It does not matter the sexual preference of these two people. This person is is in pain and hurting and damaged, and you're just gonna walk away. Clearly, and that child, like reports, talked about how young they were. Yes. Like, I think that child, that person in particular, was 18, I believe, but he didn't look 18. He was small. He was petite. He was super skinny. I want to think they were like 14 or so, but I don't know. He did have a lot of minors. Yes, he yes. did have a he did have a proclivity for the for the for the youngins for sure. But it's just that, that that I just don't understand. And to the extent that people would go to like cover up and attempt to cover up, like even if you can even get past the actual murdering part, right? Separate that from the conversation for a minute. Some of these people would hack the bodies up and put them in the freezer. Like, it wasn't just a impulse problem that they snapped. You know what I mean? They were not done. And they would keep trophies. Like, he would keep trophies of his victims as kind of like a memento. Excuse me? Like... A lot of times the trophies are used to relive crimes and that is that's scary is 
that's a lot. That's a lot to handle. But trophies, trophies wind up getting you in the end. Because you can't prove it. <laughs> yeah, we can. Yeah, we can. You have mm. his ear stapled to the wall, my dude. Like. And he was in his, his was it his grandmother's house? No, I think it started. I think the first murder happened at his parents' house with Jeffrey Dahmer specifically. I think the first one happened while yeah. his, his oh, parents were getting a divorce or something. And um, then it progressed from there. He was living on his own. I think he was in an apartment, actually, when he was finally convicted. Um, and a, a person that lived on his floor was complaining about the smell. The smell. And uh, that's what got him caught, was the smell. I think like, the same with uh, John Wayne Gacy, too, was that he had invited like an officer in to go to the bathroom or something. Yeah. And the officer smelled it and he was like, oh, there's stuff here. There's, we, we got to tear the house apart. And then they found the crawl space and just kept mm -hmm. pulling bodies, pulling bodies. Kept pulling bodies, pulling kept pulling bodies. bodies. I don't, and to be lit, like that reminds me of the telltale heart from Edgar Allan Poe. How can you just live in a house where you know you have remains of people like under the floor in the walls in the freezer like that all by itself would freak me out it would freak me out like funeral homes just freak me out anyway because there are people being beautified and cared for there unalive people just kind of laying there on tables getting you know cared for and that just entire vibe just kind of does something energetically to me. I don't know exactly how to explain it, but consciously knowing that you have bodies in the floor would freak me out. I don't think, I think that differentiates between, you know, sanity and insanity because I couldn't live there. I couldn't. I, mm -mm. I wonder if it's a, I wonder if it is a, a form of ownership in the, in their brain. It's like they, they took, they took what they wanted. They ended the life, and now they own that person's existence. And so it's oh, not that's... like, "Ooh, there's dead bodies." It's that's mine. I oh, I, I own I that. Know. That is something that we, you know, I could research a little bit, you know, with you know, the mental health aspect. But I'm not a doctor nor am I a therapist. But that's a lot. That's a lot. Like I can see. <laughs> keeping somebody's t-shirt or I could see like keeping a necklace or a ring, but like keeping the whole ass body. I just, I, that's not a level of, I could, I could wrap my brain around that. Just, that's a lot. That is and it a could lot. also be just a matter of, I hate to word, use the word disposal, but you've done this and now what are you going to do with them? Well, everybody knows you in town. So, you can't just take them out and bury them. Right. Just keep it in, in a reserved area that nobody will catch you doing it. And then for it to be multiple, like both Jomer and Gacy, it wasn't just I was raping someone and they I had to kill them once. There's 34 plus, you know, and we're not even exactly sure how many with Jeffrey Dahmer, because he would 
dissolve them in drums of acid. So yeah. like, you know, oh wow, just wow. And that's, you know, that's mental health. There, there's an issue with that. But then you have female serial killers, um, like Eileen Warner. Yeah, her. Yeah, she uh, Warner's. Yeah, she uh, she was a little wacky. Her, you know, she had a lot of trauma, and she was not healing well from this trauma. She was a little out there and was convinced that Jesus wanted her to do these things, but. Um, she, while killing people, I guess, had a justifiable reason for doing it. And by that, I don't mean I would do the same thing. Well, what I'm saying. to her, it was justifiable. Was and justifiable, to like an yeah. outside, yeah. It, would, it makes a little sense why her brain went there. But people like Dahmer, who just, I'm attracted to this man, so I'm going to drill in his brain and put acid in there so he can't fight me off. I just... That's just the level of that doesn't make any fucking sense to me why that would have even a, a thought in this man's mind. But then again, he did start off torturing animals when he was a child, and that's how all that started. So, like, mental health is super important, guys. There's a lot <laughs> like, of factors in. Like, and for people that don't think mental health is a big deal, it breeds severe problems, especially if you have a lot of trauma. And your brain just doesn't fire correctly. I don't understand why there is not a focus on mental health in this country. And that's part of the reason why I'm super passionate about it. Because there's levels of mental health. Like, I'm bipolar. I'm not going to, you know, commit um, animalistic acts of cruelty to people. But I'm not the only mental health problem in the country. There are some severe mental health issues with people. And our country does not put a focus on taking care of those people and that's why we have serial killers and that's why we have animal abusers and child abusers and spousal abusers we need to make sure that we're putting a focus on mental health and containing people that need to be contained and you know fixing issues before they progress because they knew that this was a problem with people like Donald when he was a child it was no mystery that he was beating animals and was you know, experimenting on animal bodies. There, that 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 was known, and they brushed it off. That is a red flag that you identify and you fix it mm-hmm. when they're ten years old. That way, they don't grow up to be a thirty-year-old picking out people. Yeah, like I don't go into bathhouses and gay bars to pick up your next activity. Like it progresses, and I think that you know we would see a lot of a decline and a lot of issues as a, as a people if we focus on mental health a wee bit more. And I think that stopping the generational trauma too is a big part of, is a big part of recognizing the need for help. But one, one parent had their life a certain way and then they pass that on mm-hmm. to their child who then becomes a parent and passes it on to that child and it just keeps going and going and now we're living in a time where mental health is more talked about it's more focused on than like ever before and 
there are more diagnoses that are coming out. There's more treatment options, but it's a matter of what it's a matter of opening the door and walking out into the light. Well, that and there's oh. also a big part about cost. Um, and there's a lot of insurance that people in our country have that don't cover mental health. My father's insurance does not cover mental health at all. It doesn't cover addiction. It doesn't cover therapy. It doesn't cover, you know, uh, grippy sock vacations. It doesn't even, you get three therapy visits a year covered and then the rest of them are completely out of pocket. Like I go to therapy twice a month. <laughs> like that would be one month and one visit of therapy. And then the rest of the year be completely out of pocket. And that's the major problem. Yes, we can talk about mental health all day, every day. And yes, it's something that is more accepted today, but it's still not accessible for everyone. And that is the problem. Because therapy is not cheap. It's not. Yeah. So, um, but yeah. So what's we're going to talk about in our next adventure, Erica? I don't know. Let's let's tease it and just leave it up in the air. Thanks for joining us. We love y'all sweet pumpkins. Stay safe and remember to fix your mouth. <laughs>